I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, welcome along to Writer's Routine. This is the show where we take a look through an author's working day to see how they get stuff done. Uh, This week, we are chatting to a news reporter on the telly and now writer, Robert Murphy. His book is a true crime story. It was one that he covered extensively as a TV reporter. He made a very successful podcast with it too. And now he's written the book. It's called To Hunt a Killer. It's co-written with the superintendent who worked on the case, Julie McKay. We talk about how working on the TV has made him good at hitting deadlines. Also, how he made sure he got the strong female voices of the story right. And how, because it's true crime and he's quite close to the case... He had to make sure he did it justice. It's a matter of life and death here. It's it's Julie's life and it's Melanie's death. And I, you've got to get it right, really, um, for all kinds of reasons. There's lots of red herrings in the book. There's lots of dead ends. There's lots of things that Julie's trying to do that don't quite work out. Um, and for us to tell those parts of the story, we had to change events slightly. So we weren't saying the name of the company that she was, you know, in, uh, uh, going to do a DNA swab in, or we'd have to change the names of suspects or some people as well, just to be able to tell the story. There is more on the way with Robert Murphy in this week's Writer's Routine. Yes, welcome along. My name's Dan Simpson. This is Rice's Routine. Thank you so much for being there. Thank you so much for following, for listening, for sharing. Uh, It's where we take a look inside an author's working day to see how they get stuff done, how they take an idea, how they plan their day to move it from their head onto the page. Now, this week we are with Robert Murphy. His new book is out now. It's called To Hunt a Killer. He works in TV news and he's been covering this story for quite a while now. It's the tale of how Detective Superintendent Julie McKay brought Melanie Rhodes' killer to justice. It's a conviction 25 years in the making. Now, Melanie sadly died in Bath in 1984. Um, After a year-long inquiry, 94 arrests were made, but no one was charged. Her mum, Jean, did not know where to turn. And then, in 2009, we meet Julie McKay who has just been overlooked for promotion and transfers to the cold case unit. And while she's there, she unearths a file, a tiny bit of evidence that might change everything. We talk about how they co-wrote this story together, how he got her tale down and told it in a gripping and thrilling way. But then again, remember, this is true crime. You're writing people's lives. How much thought can you give to making it gripping and thrilling without exploiting what is an absolute tragedy. We talk about how he organises a full-time creative job with a creative hobby and what home life is like too with a partner who also works in TV news and also publishes books. You can hear, now Robert is a listener to the show, so you can hear about a writing tip that he has heard here that has really worked for him. And you've got a rare shout for Maplins in there. Uh, what a memory that is. What a shop. Do you remember Maplins? If you don't, if you've never heard of The Joy that's sadly no longer here, you can find out more in this week's episode. So let's jump into it with Robert Murphy and have a look at what he sees around him in the place where he sits down to write. 
Yeah, so I've got the usual thing at the moment with the Zoom background after two years of lockdown. So I've got the bookshelves, which are behind me, which are usually, well, uh, crime and true crime, uh, crime fiction and history, because those are my sort of specialist subjects of interest. And that's the bit that looks respectable. But to my side, it's in a workshop. Uh, and there are bikes, there's dog food, there's power tools, there's mess. Uh, but that's the bit that can't be seen. Um, so it's uh, I, I work in my um, in a in a subterranean workshop in my house, um, but it's um, but it, you know it's a place of where I'm most productive, and uh, uh, it's cool in the summer, it's warm in the winter, and um, I've got a laptop here and a couple of couple of uh, 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 screen monitors, and I can just get down here and uh, take myself away and just work. Now you've got the the Zoom background, as you say, like garage bits around you. It doesn't seem like the most, I guess, creative place to tell a, a, a story. Uh, what have you got around you that maybe does help inspire you? I know what you're writing is is quite dark, so uh, I, I don't know how inspiration would work with that. But yeah, what have you put around you to write with? Uh, I'm, I've got a. My wife's also a writer, so just ahead of me, uh, we've got three sort of storyboards. So two of those are hers. Uh, where she's got her outlined with post-it notes and uh, her structure. To the left of that, I, I made a couple of podcasts uh, a couple of years ago for ITV, and I've got my sort of progress list on a chalkboard there that I've not been able – I enjoyed it so much making this podcast that I've not been able to wipe it off. So it's just a – and it was, you know, for us, it was it was a success It was a, in terms of numbers and downloads, and I can't bring myself to, to um, get rid of that chalkboard and what's written on it yet. So that's uh, that's – the the sort of inspiration that I have and the books behind me really you know you look look at the the, the works the, the the people that have inspired me over the years the the Raymond Chandler's the Robert Harris's um uh and uh the biographies as well and and that's what I've got around me uh, talk me through your desk then so we've looked around now look directly down you said you had your storyboards I would presume on the wall um what is there just around the actual physical space that you're writing on the desk yeah because I, I do a lot because i work in television primarily firstly um there's a lot of tech so there's laptop laptop stand um uh bluetooth um keyboard and mouse uh, and underneath that there's hard drives and hard drives of, of footage and interviews and and it looks like a uh, an explosion of maplins from a few years ago. There's just cables everywhere. It's a, it's a, I know where everything is. It's a, it's my own kind of organised chaos. If anyone else were to look at it, they'd think, "What on earth are you doing?" But I know where everything is. I know how it all works, and and it's probably you know representative of my life, maybe. But it's uh, um, so. But yeah, the, the key thing is just the big screen in front of you. Really, that's what you're working with every day. I really miss Maplins. I've just I just realised they went out of business, didn't they? They were they were one of those. They were they were great. They they went the way of Woolworths, didn't they? And yeah. CNA, always <laughs> like the great high street institution. <laughs> um, well, you've got two screens, which seems very very luxurious. Just tell us through, talk us through kind of that setup and and the program that you're writing with, and also we get quite deep and niche and nerdy. What font do you use, Robert? Yeah, well, actually, listening to your podcast made me really think about the ah. font. Wh why would you do anything other than Times New Roman, which is, in my old orthodox ways, uh, w would have been in my mind. But but suddenly I, I heard someone you interviewed, I can't remember who it was, saying that they write in a different um, font because um, it shows up the mistakes. And I thought, well, give that a go. And because I was writing for this Melanie's book, I was writing you know, it's dark and serious and, and it's people's lives. So, you know, you can't be funny about it really. And, and you don't want even the font to reflect that. But I did, I did try a Bradley hand for um, the first drafts of that. So it's, it's, it looks like it's kind of like handwriting font. And I just tried it to see if it would show up little mistakes along the way, following the, the tip that I got from you. And it did actually, it did work because I'm not used to that font uh, at all. You did, pick stuff up but also when i then transferred it back to times no new roman for the final drafts then i noticed loads of uh, <laughs> things i hadn't noticed in the bradley hand so um uh, and it's point point 12 uh, old school point 12 i, I guess it's just it, it's mixing up isn't it? it it's almost tricking your brain to thinking that you're working on something new yeah 
exactly that. And uh, it was Ken Follett. I think he does a Constantia as well, I think. Uh, so I tried that for a bit for, for another bit of writing that I was doing. But, uh, and, and it's a very elegant font. Um, but, but I like the Bradley hand, move it to Times New Roman. It worked. Well, and if it works for um, Ken Follett as well, I mean, you're in some company to follow his advice, I would say. You've got two screens there. Um, why two? What's going on on both of them? For the day job, I, uh, I'm a television journalist, so I'll have edit software, uh, Premiere Pro edit software on one screen with the writing script on the other. But it's also really, really helpful uh, as a for the writing of the book. This is a true crime story, so I would have news articles up on one or um, files or transcripts of interviews that I did with Julie, my, my co-writer. And um, so that was really good. I could just copy from one screen to another uh, and just really sort of refresh what was going on without having to go from one tab to the other. So it's a really um, efficient way of working. Yeah, on a writing day. Um, so when I was writing the book, and I wrote most of this book last year, um, I would, I'd be up quite, I'd be up early, sort of 5.30 and I just get down and you can do a lot at that time when nobody else is up uh, and you can do you know you can do a lot in um, an hour and a half um, uh, two hours also because I, I work in television news uh, I'm used to working extremely quickly and I have daily deadlines sometimes sometimes hourly deadlines if something just quickly happens so you can't suddenly say I, I'm not going to make that deadline I'm not going to make the six o'clock news can you put it back to, can you put it back to six, five past six? You just can't do that. So you have to deliver. I've you know never missed a deadline. So um, I'm used to working you know extremely quickly, and also I'm really used to working out on the road. So editing in cars, editing in cafes, editing in car parks, editing in offices. So um, you know I'm I'm lucky enough that I, I don't have to be in um, at a desk with a muse sort of waiting for the muse to appear at my shoulder. Um, uh, so on a writing day, when I was combining it with um, my uh, job as a de uh, reporter for ITV News, I'd be up early uh, and then start working about quarter past eight for ITV. And that would take me till about half six in the evening, uh, tea, uh, kids, family, that kind of stuff. And then I'll probably pick up again about nine o'clock for an hour, maybe review what I was doing earlier in the day. Uh, but, you know, um and that was during the, the the period when I was writing the book. Uh, beforehand, I'd, I'd spent a good little while um, researching. I was interviewing my co-writer, Julie, and transcribing and listening, really listening to what she said in, a, in order to get um, the story together. And, and, and in that portion of time there, how much work were you trying to get done and, and how much work would you end up getting done? Yeah, I, I'd aim for... 1500 words in an hour and a half two hours if i could often it'd be less it'd be nearer a thousand um the way the way i wrote this book was that i interviewed julie at length and i i i transcribed all of that before i wrote a single word of the book so i was really keen that when actually it actually came to the writing of the book that i did that quite quickly um so i think i did a, about hundred thousand words of notes uh, and transcripts before i wrote a single word of the book and the book was fairly well planned um, beforehand because um, I just think that when you get down and start writing if you write at s speed and at pace uh, people will read it at speed and pace that will carry through to that energy will carry through onto the page. Sitting there so early in the morning how good was your brain at kicking into gear when you wanted it to i know that you said that well it, it's possible to get quite a lot done at half past five was it ever a, a challenge to make your brain do what your fingers were keen for it to write no that's that's kind of my best time of the day really that time if it if i've been trying to write in the afternoon it, it would have it would have fallen flat and it taken a lot longer really I, i'm 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 just a morning person so that that's my best time of the day i'm i'm awful in the afternoons and, and early evenings um uh so that's yeah i think probably most clearly there and just tried to not look at facebook and twitter and all that kind of stuff when you with the social media at that time of day it's just you just got to think right i've got to spend this amount of time doing the day job and i've got this amount of time so you've just got to get on with it so just really to see that that um, just to treat it like another deadline, just to get finished by you know half seven or quarter past seven in the morning. And what's interesting is you're you're living 
I guess a very similar life to your your partner, who is who is Ellie Barker, who um she she has recently written a book that she was very kind enough to uh, acknowledge the podcast for, and and she works in telly as well. Is that right? That's right. We both yeah. It's strangely uncompetitive actually both live in the same work for the same company itv and uh, there was one point when we went through a round of redundancies about 14 years ago and she and i were sitting opposite each other applying applying for the same job um which she got <laughs> and uh and and we also write as well so ellie's way ahead of me so she's written she's on her third book which is coming out any day soon um uh, whereas this is uh my first published book so uh, it might not be competitive, but what it's like kind of spitballing ideas over the, dinner, over the dinner table, like dividing your time to think, OK, well, I'll look after the family now while you write and you look after the family. Now, how does that uh, process work? Is, is it quite easy and cohesive? Yeah. Uh, well, no, um, <laughs> it, it, uh, it, it, it's but there is a great mutual understanding between us, you know, that, that we both have the thing that we need to do so uh ellie's also uh, uh an early riser as well and we'll get up at, and she's writing my 10 past six as well uh most days and um uh but yeah the the, the we do sort of split split chores and split the shopping and all the, the boring domestic stuff as well as trying to find some family time together as well it does kind of work and also you know it's a great subject to talk about as well we're doing something that's really creative and i think perhaps a lot of your listeners will, will get this it's nice to be able to talk about um uh something you're really interested and really into uh, uh and if you're create like for, for example ellie who's a fiction writer is creating this world um how does she, you know if she's got some problems that she wants to talk about or she's really excited about something she's writing it's nice for her to be able to have someone that she can talk to uh, uh, about that and who's kind of going through a similar process and what's interesting as well is is, is the book that uh, that Ellie sent me was the pink coffee shop. It, it was it's different in tone, I would say, to to hunt a killer. Um, how does how does is is that some light relief for you both? I guess to hear ideas that are so alien from the stories that you are telling. It is so. Yeah, I mean, everything Ellie writes has got a dark underside, though. So that there's a big current of of darkness to to everything that Ellie does. Um, although it's dressed up in a, a nice sort of pink, pretty bow. Um, uh, it, it kind of, in some ways, it doesn't really matter what you're writing about, as long as you're really interested in it, and the process is the same, the structure is the same, characters. You, you know, you you will have all those conversations about um, uh, what characters do and the challenges they face and how to get through a certain thorny issue. Um, it's uh, yeah, it's it's just a mutual support, really. When the words aren't coming out. Uh, what do you do to to kind of help unblock that clog? Uh, some people go for runs or have a cup of coffee or a certain bit of music at a precise time. Is there anything you do? Yeah, I'm a swimmer, so uh, I'll go swimming. Uh, I'll, I'll go to the pool and and for, for half an hour and and have a go or for a walk or take the dog for a walk or just go up and have a have a have a little break. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, or. Also, because the day job is also uh, quite interesting, exciting. That is in itself a, a, a welcome break from the writing as well. So, you know, I might find myself writing um, uh, about a crime, about the crime, the murder of Manly Road, you know, at, at six, half past six in the morning. And then I'll find myself in Crown Court later in the day doing a, a completely separate case. But actually, it sort of pings some thoughts back about the case as well. And you'll see things happen. You'll see the court process and you'll suddenly remind yourself about uh, uh, some parts of the, the writings. They, they intertwine quite nicely. Both parts of your work are quite, like you need to be very switched on and, and focused to do this, to, to both get the words that you want to get done early in the morning. And then if you are off at Crown Court, you're paying attention, you need to script, you need to record, you need to edit to get it done because the deadline isn't going to move for you. How like mentally exhausting is it to, to, to keep going and keep that energy up? Because I, I, I love both parts of my, you know, both jobs that, that I've done. Um, it's fine because... It doesn't feel like work. Uh, I, I'm, you know, lucky enough that that with the day job as ITV, um, I've, I've, I can honestly say in twenty odd years of doing it, I, I've done about two proper days' work that I've I've struggled with because it's it's interesting. It's uh, you're out 
every day you're seeing people you're um in their world for a day and the, the very nature for me being there means it has to be interesting and exciting because otherwise i wouldn't be putting it on the news so uh that, that that's no struggle at all and with the book as well you know it's such a, a a compelling story that i didn't struggle with it at all it was it was just a question of getting through it and getting it done to the best of the ability because it, it was it was a joy and utter joy to be in uh, to, to write and to be trusted uh, uh, to do that to do it if as you say deadlines don't wait and you need to get your <clears throat> report filed by six o'clock or whenever it is and you need to get your words down at a certain time in the morning uh, if you were honest with yourself d- does d- does the quality is the quality sometimes not there because you're so up against it that it's just a case of getting anything or are you quite well trained at matching quality to an absolute deadline you would think yeah exactly if you're if you're working that quickly how how can it be good as well so um it's just a question particularly with the day job being really organized and and knowing exactly what what you're doing and 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 having you know a bit of experience to make sure it's there with the book obviously it's a, a a much longer process um with you know the research phase we wrote it over a good many months a good good many months and we went through i think about 22 drafts so and through edits and things like that so um hopefully the by by the end of it you know the first draft isn't it isn't what it should be but by the 10th it really is and by the 20th hopefully uh it really is planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and it's all priced at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands plus quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices pack your bags with high quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with quince go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365 day returns many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care plush care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey they can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Now, in a couple of weekends' time, on the 17th and 18th of September, I will be in bloody Scotland up in Stirling, uh, one of the biggest crime writing festivals in the world. I'll be hosting two sessions. One is about British writers uh, telling stories of Americana, hosting a panel with some fantastic crime writers, finding out how they get that done. Also, I'll be chairing a session with Janice Hallett and Joanne Harris, uh, whose debut books have both been phenomenally successful. They've both been on this show in the last year. I'm very excited to chat to them. Uh, If you're headed to bloody Scotland make sure you say hello we'll stop we'll grab a coffee a chat a beer whatever it is Um, and yeah if you fancy if you're around come and see those sessions that I am hosting at bloody Scotland also if you'd like to support this show if you'd like us to keep on going to keep bringing you these chats as often as possible with the best authors around you can support us on Patreon patreon.com forward slash writers routine is where you need to go become a backer there just a couple of dollars a month helps us carry on for that you get our eternal thanks you get merch, you get bonus content. There is even a way for your book to sponsor this show and it really doesn't take a lot. Uh, it goes an extraordinarily long way. I know there's this cost of living crisis going on at the moment. I know it's incredibly hard to simply pay bills, warm your house, eat dinner. So anything that you can chuck my way um, is very well appreciated. I assure you that you can become a backer and help the show at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. 
Let's get back to it then with Robert Murphy chatting through his new book, To Hunt a Killer. It's co-written with Detective Superintendent Julie McKay and the story of how she brought a killer to justice 25 years after the murder. We talk about how he got the strong female voices in this story right and how that was very important to him. Also, how he plotted out a true story, uh, weaving through maybe plot points a genre reader might expect and making it accessible too. And we jump back in right at the heart of the story, how he first knew about this case and these people. And at what point did he think it might make a good book? Yeah, the, the initial idea was having covered it for the news, really. Um, I, I originally met Julie back in 2014 when, when she was covering the, the case of she was the lead detective trying to find the killer of Melanie Road. Melanie was a, a, a 17-year-old schoolgirl murdered in 1984. You know, back when she was killed, she was found stabbed um, just around the corner from her home in Bath. Um, and genera- you know, that year, it was one of the biggest manhunts in, in the country. Uh, generations of detectives had tried and failed to find Menley's killer. And then it was compounded 12 years to the day later on June the 9th, 1996, when in the same city, Bath, another woman called Melanie, Menley Hall, uh, disappeared and was later confirmed as being murdered. So you have the whole coincidence thing there, which is just just um, so spooky. Um but Julie was leading this inquiry back in 2014. It was the 30th anniversary and she was campaigning, you know, for information. She had a full DNA um, sample of the killer. He left um, uh, some samples at the scene of, of Melanie's murder. Um, but she just didn't know who killed him. You know, uh, who was this man? He could be dead. He could be in prison. He could be abroad. Um, generations of detectives had tried and been unsuccessful. And I met her and interviewed her and, you know, she's uh, a, a great, talker uh, and she knows how to lead a, a, a team she's a good leader um but i kind of thought well how are you going to you know i thought i, I was a, i admired her persistence uh, and resilience and i thought well good luck but what techniques what are you going to be able to do to to solve this case in a way that others haven't been able to before what's going to change now and then fast forward just over a year and the ping comes in my email email box saying man arrested on suspicion of the murder of Melanie Road. I thought, my God, Julie, well done. That's amazing. A couple of days later, I was in court, Bath Magistrates Court, and we saw this guy um, who had been charged with the murder and Julie was there. And it's the first time in 30 years that um, we had a face to the man who had killed Melanie, this man that, that, that thousands of detectives over decades had been looking for. Uh, and there he was, and she'd found him along with her team. And um, just from that point of view, I thought it was interesting. Um, and I'd known Julie a little while and I'd spoken with her over a, a couple of other uh, inquiries that she'd led as well. But then fast forward to the trial, uh, which was a year later. And uh, by that time, I'd gone into the inquiry room, I'd met the team, I'd seen how the inquiry was built. It was all built on case files, it's pre-computers, there were 30,000 documents. It was, you know, proper old school cold case and how she had, uh, how she was trying to corral and organize this into a trial ready uh, inquiry was just fascinating. And we were expecting there to be a trial. Um, ahead of the um, hearing, uh, I interviewed Melanie's mother, Jean. Um, Jean had never been interviewed before. And that was just, um, Jean's just amazing, Melanie's mum. You know, if you were to see her, she was then about 80. Um, She, if you were to see her, she looks like, you know, your your grand, she walks with a cane. She's very well turned out. She sits down and she just looks so um, normal. And and when she opens, she tells the story about what impact her murder, the murder of her daughter has had on her, how she found out uh, through a police tannoy 30 years beforehand. The last time she saw her daughter is just so moving and the impact it's had on her life and what she and her family have been living with, the impact uh, has had on her. And that was uh, just an honor to, to have that contact with Jean. And then a couple of days later, we had the trial or it was going to be a trial. And then at the last minute, um, the murderer pleaded guilty. And that was just, you know, I've, I've been lucky enough to cover some 
big, big, big court cases over the years, but this was just the most emotional thing I've seen in court, where uh, he pleaded guilty and then Jean and then her two children, uh, Adrian and Karen, both, all three of them gave victim impact statements. And it's one of those moments where you're sitting there in court just a few meters away from this drama being played out in real life. And this eloquent family, this fantastically dignified family are telling the killer of their daughter, their sister, what impact this thing he had done years before had had on them. You know, Jean said, you know, uh, that she, uh, uh, when Melanie's blood was spilled, she prayed it wouldn't rain to wash it away. And then she cursed the rain for finally taking it away is how she described it in court, just poetic. Um, And as the killer sat there in the dock, the dock officer next to him, the security guard, was in floods of tears. You know, the one sound we heard apart from the victim impact statements. And I was there and I thought, my God, this is amazing. This is just, you know, this is just, I, I need to tell this in a, in a, on a different campus to the three minute news piece tonight. Um, and so fast forward, you know, a couple of years, I, I got to know Julie a little bit better. And we did a podcast on the same story that, that, that was quite successful. I had a sort of million odd downloads, I think. Um, and so we decided to write the book. She'd retired. She was in a position to, to write the book. And her story, Julie's story, it's like when you, it's like, I guess like it's when you go to the beach and you pull up a rock and you see all this life underneath it. When you actually start sort of prodding around, you see all this stuff that's underneath it. That to that life is just so normal. And Julie's life is so extraordinary. So you have this lead detective. She's been overlooked for decades for her job. She's... Um, uh, tried really hard to juggle a family. Uh, she's in a new relationship that isn't quite working out. Um, and as the story came to the end, when I was on the scene uh, watching the inquiry uh, as the, 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 the trial, as the investigation comes to the end leading up to the trial, her own Julie's life was falling apart. She had a health scare. She was in hospital. Her relationship was falling down. Her kids, her teenage kids, who are amazingly successful, but then were a bit of a struggle. I think she'd be the first to say this. And she was broken by this. And uh, she was really, really struggling. She had a, a major operation and she um, was utterly broken being a full-time detective and uh, 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 effectively a single mum to three teenagers. And the one place she found salvation, the one place she found tranquility, the one place she found support was at Jean Rhodes' house. She would go there. She would drop off groceries. She would cut Jean's lawn. She would block up the badger set in Jean's garden and this bond that Julie and Jean had was um, unlike anything else I'd heard in a true crime story before Um, you know this actually happened this relationship between murder detective and mother of murder victim was a, a dynamic that I'd never come across before and it actually happened between two amazing women two incredible women inspiring women uh, and the more I, Julie told me about this, the more I thought, I've just got to tell this. And, and I, you know, it, it was more a question of, will I do this well enough rather than, you know, can I get the words on the page? Just will it be up to the, the right quality for Julie's sake and for Melanie's sake and for Jean's sake? Many authors will take events that have happened and, and fictionalise them quite a bit. Was that ever a thought that came into your mind? I've spoken to other uh, people who have been in the police particularly, who have been around some incredible cases and have used bits and pieces to tell their own story about their own grizzled copper. Uh, why why choose to stick to the facts so much? Because yeah, it's, yeah, th- this, you know, this was a book and yes, it is you know, you could say just a book, but it isn't. It's a matter of life and death here. It's it's Julie's life and it's Melanie's death. And I, you've got to get it right, really, um, for, for all kinds of reasons. That, that You know, because we were, were dealing, there's lots of red herrings in the book. There's lots of dead ends. There's lots of things that Julie's trying to do that don't quite work out. Um, and for us to tell those parts of the story, we had to change events slightly so we weren't saying the name of the company that she was you know in, uh, uh, going to do a DNA swab in or we'd have to change the names of suspects or some people as well just to be able to tell the story so as far as that happened that you know some parts of this are sort of composite just to just to be able to tell the truth of what actually happened um, but this is a you know this is a true crime story and 
as many readers will probably understand, is what actually happens is often so much more interesting than real life. Um, you, you couldn't, I guess, in some ways, make the, make the story up. You know, the 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 connection between um, the the dynamic between Julie and Jean is not something I've read in a in a, in a fictional work. And it's right here, and it actually happens, and they're as close today as they ever have been. It's still ongoing. In in the very basic form of what you did, what is the process for kind of writing this novel? So you you, you sit down with Julie, you put your recorder on, and and then what happens? How do you get out what you want to write a story with? Just talk us through that process of having the initial chats to then getting a book down. I was really helped by the fact that Julie is so eloquent. And so um, uh, she's charismatic, very charismatic as well. And so the first few times she uh, would actually just record at home uh, an hour and I'd give her a sub- specialist subject about you know her background as a police officer in Bath or uh, something else. And, um, uh, and she would send me these fantastic audio clips that might last sort of 45 minutes to an hour uh, where she was just telling me stuff. And she is a, a wonderful raconteur and she's a great observer as well. And uh, she characterizes the way she sort of draws people's characters out are just in her own right as a talker. Fantastic. I, I think she'd say she wouldn't necessarily be able to write this down, but she can talk about it beautifully. And she does. And then after I had that sort of basic structure, <laughs> she did do a, a presentation to a women's institute about her life. And uh, uh, it was during the, the height of lockdown. Uh, she gave an, uh, a presentation, a lockdown Zoom uh, presentation about her life and career. And that was incredible, you know, this this uh, hour long thing. And she sent me the recording of that. And that that formed a basis for a lot of the book actually just that and then when we were really sort of going into the detail we'd perhaps spend half an hour talking about surveillance work or this swabbing of this suspect you know they would need to take dna swabs of uh, uh, of people or about uh, this time where she was talking to jean about something or this time where she was really struggling to be a mum and um a detective at the same time uh, or this other time where she'd been overlooked for promotion, or this time she'd had an amazing success. Uh, so we would do those interviews. I would transcribe those interviews, and just that transcription process would really help with the time when I actually got down to putting the words, the words on the words on the page. When you put the words on the page, you've got to do it from the viewpoint of um, well, of a, of a woman, and you are not that. So wh- what are you doing to to get Julie's voice properly accurate? Yeah, and this is a very female book as well. It's about three really strong women. It's about Julie, it's about Jean, and it's about Melanie as well. And uh, so three women, and, and I'm not a woman. I've got no plans to be one soon. And uh, so I actually did quite a lot of work, actually. There's a fantastic book um, by uh, a lady called Gail Carragher called The Heroine's Journey. Um, and I think, you know, the difference between a, a, a female protagonist and a male protagonist has been written about quite a lot, but that was just the recent book that was out at the time and so it was really interesting to see how the difference is you know with the the, the normal male well not the normal but with a male protagonist the, the archetype the james bond or the the philip marlowe or the jack reacher or something like that often you know the, the man becomes at his strongest when he's by himself uh and people are seen as a threat or underhand but with according to this this book um in if you go back to the the days of law, the 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 legends, uh, a heroine's journey is very very different. It's about uh, collaboration. It's about family. It's about trying to keep people together. You know, going back to Isis and Demeter and all these uh, uh, these legends. Uh, and at the time, according to Gail Carriger, um, that uh, a heroine is at her weakest, is almost challenged, is when she's by herself. And just having that as a as a help, as a prop, really helped. Just me a bit when it came to the writing because it's exactly julie's case is exactly that in this case so she's family orientated she's a mum first she has two families she has her police family as well she's a real collaborator as i found out she's a fantastic collaborator to write the book with as well she was great um uh but the times that she's at her most isolated uh you know are the, the times that are the most challenging as well so there's a point right at the end of the book where uh you know her 
her relationships breaking down she's her, her kids are uh, in, are being tricky and she's had this big health scare as well and she's got the professional moment of her life looming but she herself is just by herself and and no one's there to help her she's just by alone and i think that's from her perspective one of the most powerful points of the the, the book and it is a very different journey from the the, the archetypal man's journey Quite often men writing women are uh, uh, criticised very much online because they do it so badly. Now, this is not the type of book where you would have been doing much of what they get maligned for. You, you know, you're, you're not describing the way people look in overly generous terms, but still you are embodying the voice of... of of a of a woman how much even with the books that you read and the research you did how often did you feel that perhaps you were you were veering it you were veering into a place where you shouldn't how often did you feel maybe maybe you you were doing it wrong in places yeah if i was ever worried about it and there were times where i was uh, i would just refer back to julie and i said is this fair and she would say yeah that's fine or no it's not it's more like this and her voice is so distinctive and so strong that um we would take you know that that we would make the changes um uh so i wasn't overly worried about it i was it's more about get the structure down and put ourselves in that position and and here's the scene and this is the scene and in my mind it looks like this julie is this right and she'll say yes it is or no it isn't it was much more like this and often what she would say is far more extraordinary than anything anyone could could come up with um, so, you know, it, you know, it was very much a collaboration, uh, and, and, you know, she's so observant and remembers so much as well. You know, she's got brilliant eye for detail, um, that, that I didn't overly worry because there was a whole other filter that you know, she's the co-writer and, um, if she wasn't happy with it, it didn't go in. You've got the set scene, haven't you? You've got to build the scene and you've got to make the scene work. So, um, often during the, the questioning, during the, interview stage i would have that in mind so i would ask her you know that really granular detail about do you remember the drive to to east anglia to do this the swab of the man who was the screamer who the fam familial dna this new technique that they were trying you know this is the killer you know uh after a few months they were sure it was him or what was it like being in the the storeroom you know where all these cold cases were were stored you know this really atmospheric place now you know I, in the research phase i would ask her that but that there was a lot of scope for me to be able to really build the scene as well and she was very relaxed about me um uh saying look we've got to have this bit here and we need to really put the reader in this spot they they need to walk in your shoes julie so there, there was quite a lot of scope for that as well uh, uh and um uh julie was very chilled really about um the moments i had to do that describing the day and uh, uh describing the backdrop of bath and the royal crescent one of the big swabs was actually on the royal crescent one of the most famous streets in the world you know and the most elegant streets in the world and you can you can you can do a lot with that as a writer and uh uh the thing i have is because i'm a television journalist by day tv journalists don't do description our job is not to describe because the pictures do the description our job is to add value to the pictures that you see on the screen so it's a completely different skill set really that i was having to to go into but it was uh it was fine uh, uh julie was um you know happy with with what we did and that, and that was the main thing as long as she's happy well, you mentioned being a TV journalist. And I wanted to ask you about this. You, you've covered this specific story on telly <clears throat> for years, then as a podcast, and now you're, you're, you've written a book about it. How difficult was it to take a subject which you'd covered in three-minute bulletins or reports and then, I don't know, 40-minute podcasts, and now you're you're stretching this out to a, to a, to a story that people read? Uh, how challenging was that shift to be a bit more descriptive than perhaps you'd been before? Yeah, it, it, that was that was a big a big consideration before we did it. And also, would the story really stretch to 90,000 words as well? And um, before uh, I got going, I, I kind of thought it might do, but I wasn't really sure. But when we had that interview phase and I was sitting with Julie and she was describing, and she's so honest, um, her the challenges that she faced 
uh, and the difficulties she she faced, and they're not just confined to you know she happens to be a murder detective, but they're the the kind of challenges we all face as parents and as people trying to get on in life if we feel overlooked or you know there's problems with a relationship or something like that. But when she was actually telling me exactly what happened, and you know there was a point where she was sat down describing how she would go to to Jean Rhodes. Um, home and this was the one place she got salvation and, and you thought I've never heard anything like this before I just haven't and um, she by the time at the end of the interview stage uh, was complete I, I I didn't have any worries about it at, at all um, in fact it's a question of getting it down to 83 or 84,000 words or whatever it is at the end it was over 100,000 words in the first draft um, but th- there's, there's the whole thing you know, the thing, how she changes throughout, you know, when she starts off, she's, a, you know, a, a sergeant. By the time she ends, she's a, a superintendent running a three-force murder squad. And uh, uh, you've got the whole thing about how she builds with, you know, the, the challenges and the, the way she either rises to them or sometimes they they seem a bit too high on how she gets around them. Um, the, the characterizations of people as well, how you describe them. I guess in a way I, I was quite lucky because I had covered the case as a journalist. So I had been in some of the big, you know, towards the end, but I've been in all the big court scenes anyway. So I could describe in a ways perhaps no other writer could. Um, uh, but, and I had met quite a few of the other investigators as well. So I guess that, that, that did help. Both had really agreed at the beginning what kind of book we had wanted to write. So although this is a, a true crime book and um, it has all the, the, the tropes that you need. So there's blind alleys, there's suspects that you think have to be the, the man, the killer. Um, there's all kinds of uh, uh, collaborators and scientists and family members as well. Um, uh, we were really keen that this is also a general reader book as well. So it has to have bigger principles to it as well. Humor, Julie's very funny. She's a really, really funny person. And so what place does humor have in the, 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 the book as well? Uh, and, uh, and the relationship, you know, between Julie and, and the others, uh, where does that go as well? And the pace, the cliffhangers at the end of each chapter, which we've tried to do as well. And yeah, that, that's something we thought really hard about. We thought really hard about when we came to structure it uh, as well, that we needed every chapter to, to, to finish with a what's next. Well, let's talk about that structure quickly, because it's just dawned on me that you're in a position that <clears throat> very few authors are in, in that, you know, pretty much every single detail of what you're writing, not just the beginning, middle and end, but exactly the characters that are at play, exactly the suspects, you know, everything, because it's all there as recorded events. I mean, the public could look this up if they wanted to. How did you do the cre- the creative thought about the structure? Did you put it down as a storyboard somewhere? How did that exist? Or is it was it just a simple, let's go from A to B in a timeline? No, exactly. Because <clears throat> I'm a complete, you know, if it were a novel, I'd have, you know, it's an awful phrase, but uh, a pantser or a discovery writer is probably the more polite mm. way of doing it. And that's how I would naturally do it. But this, you know, these are people's lives you're writing about and you have to get it right. So, um, I, and and I, in real life, I'm not a man for spreadsheets, but I actually did a spreadsheet with a, you know, with a four act, three act, you know, where you break up the middle, you know, act, act two into two acts structure and uh, uh, 40 pages, uh, 40 chapters where you, we kind of knew exactly everything that was going on and if if that had been a novel i think i might have stru- struggled with it a bit because you know you need to know you know you need to have a bit of uh play it among that but it mm. it, it it wasn't um for, for here the, the the fun if for want of a better word in writing was to try and get the the stuff that had been told to me by julie and try there and transcription into a way of words that that is um a book and that people would like to read, and so it's that filter really to turn it from transcription into into um, into book into something that's a, a page turner. Normally, you tell stories on the telly in, in short uh, reports on the telly. Uh, was that a um, was that a hindrance at all? That suddenly having having to, I, I know that you said that well, the material you, you were working with meant you could easily get to ninety thousand words. But in simply telling the story and in, in structuring a story, so you're stretching out much more than you would when you were doing it as a piece on the TV. 
was your background and experience doing that? Was it a hindrance in, in trying to go a bit more long form? Yeah, it's a real different mindset. You know, it's a completely different mindset. Um, uh, television writing for television news, which is a really quite a niche type of writing compared with a book where, you know, as a television journalist, you don't write long florid descriptions. You don't go all Laurie Lee on it um, because mm. the pictures, the pictures do all of that for you and you have to add value. You have to tell people what's behind the pictures or what's on top of the pictures. Um, and so it was really just being brave enough to write those scenes of description that I hadn't really done for the day job at all. And just sort of trusting that I could do it or if I, and it certainly wasn't right after the first couple of drafts and, you know, it's just a question of going back and doing it again and again and again until it's, uh, um, and just, thinking well like a television news deadline really you got to do it so just just you just got to do it and just hope that after the first draft you know it's not going to be right but just do it and that'll be a placeholder and then go back and then really really concentrate on and trying to get those uh those descriptions as as good as good as you can and moving on how much has this inspired you to write other books maybe your own novels yeah, I've written. A, uh, yeah, I've I've got a novel that that needs a good a good little work yet, um, uh, uh, and that's uh, yeah. Hopefully that will come out at some point um, soon. Um, and uh, the, the the good thing about this is, is it's just um, I've just been able to learn so much more about police procedure, um, being able to sort of really get into that granular detail about the uh, about police files and about how police really work and uh, uh, and and the mistakes as well there's lots of sort of mistakes along 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 the way here as well you know the kind of things that um, you know it sounded like a good idea at the time but didn't work and that, that's quite an interesting side of things um, uh, to, to to get into a novel as well so yeah I've, I've got a novel that's backed up and uh, hopefully uh, that'll see in the light of day soon <music> Thank you to Robert Murphy. That brand new book is to hunt a killer. It is out right now. He has co-written it with Julie McKay. It's a fantastic true crime tale. Uh, how they brought justice to a, to a family who lost their daughter 25 years after it happened. That's to hunt a killer and it's out right now. Next week, we are chatting to Emily Horton about her brand new book, Last Time We Met. You can find out how she wrote the entire first draft of it on her phone flying around the world. Must be nice for some, eh? That's with Emily Horton next week on the show. In the meantime, you can support us, patreon.com forward slash writers routine. You can give us a follow on Twitter. We are at writers pod there and you can get in touch with the show at writersroutine.com. And I will see you next week with Emily Horton. Until then, bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.